you have your Bibles, you can open them to Mark chapter 4. Uh, Mark chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> Last week, we began a sermon series on the secrets to living a victorious Christian life. Uh, we're going to continue that series tonight, and we're going to take another look at the parable of the sower and the seed. You say, Maria, why do you say another look? Uh, we studied this parable a number of months ago, maybe even a year ago, uh, but as I was reading through it again recently, I, I discovered something that I had completely overlooked, uh, and it pierced my heart. In fact, I, I went to Dave and I said, have you ever seen this in this passage before? I, I've taught on this passage. I, I could have quoted this verse to you, and yet it jumped off the page when I read it this week, and so I really felt like we needed to revisit it. So if you've heard me teach it before, I'm sorry, but I've preached it before, and I got something completely uh, different out of it this time, and so uh, bear with me and ask the Lord for, for fresh manna because he will give it to you. Uh, Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 20, and again, he, he's talking about Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root in it, withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced. I love that. Yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you then understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. These likewise are the ones who sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with faith, with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear it, accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60 and some 100. 
Matthew and Mark also record this parable. If you'd like to stick your finger in those passages and look at them later, Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 21, and Matthew 13, 1 through 13. Let's look, though, at Mark's version in verse 1. It says, And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat on it in the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land. I don't want you to miss the fact that there was a great multitude of people present here. Luke tells us in his version of the story that they had come to him from every city. And he spoke to them in parables. You need to know that just prior to this story, Jesus had miraculously healed the widow at Nain's son. He interrupted a funeral and brought this boy back from the dead. And Luke tells us that the report about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding regions. I just bet it did. People were talking. And they had come that day from all over because of that incident. They had come from all over to just see this Jesus that everybody was talking about. And there was a great multitude. And they had gathered from all the surrounding cities. But not because they really wanted to hear the message that Jesus was teaching. Not because they truly wanted to change. They came because they were curious about him. And they wanted to see what he could do. They were coming because he had performed a miracle and people were talking. They weren't necessarily coming to hear his message. The crowds haven't changed, have they? We will chase after a miracle. We will chase after signs and wonders. When it comes to hearing a solid, unadulterated word of God that will truly change and transform us, we're not so excited about that. Verse 2, that he taught them many things by parables. What what is a parable? Stephen Cole, uh, one of my favorite commentators, say that parables serve two functions. And I, I want you to hear this. They reveal truth to those who are spiritually responsive. And they conceal truth from those who are spiritually superficial. I like that. That's why Jesus was teaching that morning in parables. Parables are told that so only those who really want to know the truth will discover it. Not because they have some kind of understanding that the other people don't have, but because they care enough uh, to seek out truth and, and to stay with Jesus long enough to gain understanding. We see that in verse 10 when, when Jesus said, but when, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve Ask him about the parable. Mark tells us that the the crowds, the multitude had left by that time. And Jesus gives the interpretation only, hear this, only to the disciples and those who did not leave with the rest of the crowd. One of my favorite translations is J.B. Phillips. And he has an interesting take on this verse. He says, then when they were by themselves, his close followers and the twelve asked him about the parable. And he told them that the curious crowds looking for signs and wonders left. They they didn't remain in Jesus' presence long enough to gain understanding. Only his close followers did. The disciples didn't leave his presence. They they received the interpretation. They tarried for it. Uh, I wonder if we tarry for interpretation? Do we sit with the word until it sits in us? Do, do, do we sit with the word long enough till we get an understanding that, 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 we, that we can take throughout our day and let it truly change and transform us? 
They inquired of Jesus, and he gave them the revelation. And if we want greater understanding of God's word, we need to tarry in his presence. We need to ask him for the revelation. We are too quick to leave his presence. Verse 3, Jesus says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. That word listen, oh, it's one of my favorite Greek words. Anybody who, who knows me, will uh, they, they know this. I love this word. It's a kuo. And it means to hearken. It means to attend to. It, it means to yield obedience to the voice. You see, anytime you see the word hear in the, in the Bible, when Jesus says you have ears to hear, but you do not hear, that's the word he's using. It, it doesn't just mean to hear with our ears. It means to hear and obey. The implication is that if you and I don't take what we hear... If you're sitting here tonight and you don't take what you hear and obey it, you haven't really heard. You're wasting your time here because you're hearing, but you're not hearing. John Stott says the emphasis on seriousness was necessary because hearing Jesus seems to have become one of the things to do at the time. Crowds begat crowds, and there was enough excitement in the healings, exorcism, and controversy to keep them coming. The parable requires seriousness if we are to begin to grasp its meaning. Hence, Jesus calls them to listen. Jesus' parabolic method of teaching did not pander and still does not pander to the casual, half-hearted listener. The hearer had to work at it and continue with it. And we see that his disciples and his close followers did that. When Jesus says, listen, he uses the imperative in the present tense. <laughs> Ask my Friday morning people what that means. It means that, that, that Jesus was not issuing an invitation, nor was he simply making a declaration. An imperative is a command. He was commanding them to listen. He's commanding us to listen, to take what he was saying with seriousness and to follow it in obedience. Jesus knew that not everybody who had gathered on the shore that day would hear his message. He knows that not everybody who's gathered here tonight will hear his message. Some had already made up their mind about who he was, and some had come only because of what he had done and, or only because they were following the crowds or it was something to do. They were listening without listening. They were hearing without hearing. His words went in one ear and out the other, and I wonder if they do that to us sometimes. Jesus knew that not everyone would receive his word because they didn't receive him, and he was the living word. When he says, listen, it's not just an imperative, it's in the present tense, which means it, it, they should continually, habitually be listening for his voice. So Combined, the present imperative is a call, a call to a long-term commitment. And it calls for the attitude or the action to be one's continual way of life, his or her lifestyle. It should be a lifestyle of listening for Jesus' voice and obeying what he tells us to do. It's important that you know that when Jesus says hear or listen, he's not talking about a physical hearing. He's talking about a hearing that takes place in the inner man. A hearing that happens when the seed touches down on the soil of our heart and it penetrates our lives and we receive it and hear it in such a way that it changes us and transforms us. When was the last time that you can say that you were truly transformed and changed by a word of God in your life? 
I hope that happens for you on Monday night. I hope that happens for you on Sunday mornings. I hope that happens for you every time you get in this word until it gets in you. Do you know that it's possible to sit here week after week hearing the word of God being sown into our lives and never change? It's possible to leave church on Sunday morning or Bible study on Monday night, maybe even saying, oh, that was a good message, Pastor, but never having it impact us because we heard but we didn't hear. We have ears to hear but do not hear. So Jesus goes on to draw a picture for them what it means to have ears that hear but do not hear. And he begins to say in verse 3, a sower went out to sow. I've shared with you many times that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So as you know, Jesus frequently used parables as a means to illustrate profound truths. I'm a visual learner. That's how I learn with pictures. It's just easier for me that way. And that's what Jesus did. He painted pictures for them using things that that were in their everyday life. And he would use them to paint a spiritual truth. So the story he was telling was engaging, and it probably happened to most of them on a regular basis, and they could identify and connect the picture in their mind. And so I picture Jesus that day sitting on a boat, teaching this crowd, looking out over the crowd, and maybe noticing a sower sowing in a field nearby. And I can imagine him pointing to that sower, uh, sowing the seeds, and using it to paint a picture of the important spiritual truth he was about to drive home to his audience. And so he looks and he says, a sower went out to sow. What's he sowing? We see it in verse 14. Jesus identifies it for us. He says, the seed is the word of God and the soil is the heart of man. He's talking about what's happening here tonight. The seed of God's word is going out. It's being sown into your heart. And so the command to listen comes with it. The command, uh, Jesus' command to listen is a call to examine our relationship to God and his word. What is the soil of your heart like? Is it open and receptive to his word? Will you allow the word you're hearing tonight to truly change your life or will you harden your heart to it? Every time we hear the word, we have a choice. Will I let it penetrate me and change me or will I harden my heart to it and say, you know what, that's just too convicting for me. I like a nice word. I I like to leave church feeling good. And well, you rock on with your bad self, but you are going to be the same ugly self in 10 years that you are right now. And I don't know about you, but I am sick enough of Rhea. I want to change. I want to be transformed. I want to look like more like him. I want to act more like him. I want to be kinder. I want to be more compassionate. I want to ooze love everywhere I go. I want to look like Jesus. And if I want that, I have to be open and receptive to his word. I can't harden my heart to it. In verse 4, Jesus said, it happened as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. In this parable, the sower sowed a seed on four different types of soil. I want you to see that. Because what's so important here is that although he sowed his seed on four different types of soil, only one soil produced a harvest. Tonight, his word is going out on all kinds of soil. Remember, the soil is the condition of our hearts. The seed is his word. There is absolutely nothing wrong with his seed. I'm telling you, it is incorruptible seed. It is good seed. It's seed that produces a harvest. All it needs to find is some good ground. 
But Jesus is saying, anytime seed goes forth, there are four different types of soil present. Four different types of hearts that are present anytime the seed of God's word is being sown. And Jesus uses the outcome of the seeds in various kinds of terrain to illustrate the receptiveness of people's hearts to the gospel. Jesus is illustrating the importance of making sure our hearts are receptive to the seed of his word. So let's look at those four different types of soil. The first type of soil is seed that was sown on the wayside. It's wayside soil. And you need to know that in Palestine during this time, they didn't uh, sow seed and, and make gardens the way we do today. They didn't have beautifully plowed ground or cultivated farmland like you see today. Uh, instead, a family would be appointed a section uh, of land in a farm community and each family's plot of land would be adjacent to their neighbors and in order to get to the fields the farmers would walk along a little footpath that was bordering each field to avoid stepping on the plants and so uh, you know if they're walking on that same little footpath every time it would get trampled down and hardened do you see that and so they walked on that footpath and they didn't plant seeds like we do today. They had a basket or a bag, and they would reach in and throw it. They called it broadcasting uh, seed throughout their field. And so some seed would naturally fall uh, on the, the part of the ground where they wanted it to fall, but some would wind up in places which were not conducive to growth. And that's what happened in this part of the parable. As it was scattered, the seed Jesus is referring to fell not on the fertile field, but on the wayside, on the footpaths between the fields, the ones that were well used and trodden down. Uh, the soil would have been hard and compacted. And that was the area that Jesus was referencing. Uh, that, that, that wayside would have been hard as a rock. And because it wasn't cultivated, the seed did not penetrate it. It just sat on top of the hard ground. And, and the Bible tells us that the birds came and took that seed away. Look at verse 15. Jesus tells us that the birds are symbolic of Satan. So, so what does that mean in this passage? What Jesus is saying is that when the word of God is preached, when it's sown, sometimes it falls on hard, calloused hearts. Hard soil that hasn't been properly cultivated. Hearts that haven't been examined daily and, and junk removed. Hearts that have been trodden down by life, stepped all over and hardened because of sin's deceitfulness or hardened because of pain and heartache, hardened because of trials and tribulation. And, and, and the, because of that, those hardened hearts can't be penetrated. The hardness keeps God's word from penetrating and bringing forth fruit. That's why it's so important. You ask Leslie, she prays with me all the time. Ask Dave. One of the things I pray for the most in my life, almost daily, wouldn't you say, is examine me and see if there's any wicked way in me. The Bible says that we are deceived by the pride of our heart. I don't want to think there's any wicked way in me. Can I just tell you, I want to think I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. I, I want to go to God and just say, you know, aren't you so pleased with me? But we are deceived by the pride of our heart. Our heart will say, I'm not that bad. And so every day I go before God and I say, examine me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Put your finger on the stuff in my life that you want to clean up because, Lord, I don't want a hard heart. Soften my heart, Lord God. I want your word to be able to penetrate it. Jesus is saying that the word is sown and, and people don't understand it because their heart is hardened to it. And there could be people like that here tonight, people just going through the religious motions, 
Maybe you're here because your spouse pressured you to come, or maybe you're just here because you know it's the right thing to do, and you sit under the Word of God week after week, but it doesn't penetrate you. You're not even sure you believe in God. But you might, you might find it surprising, but I'm here to tell you it's possible to sit under a teaching, say amen, and even tell the preacher it was a good message, and your heart still be hardened to it. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, I love that, the word of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Somebody? The king's domain, where the king rules and reigns. <laughs> the word of the kingdom. And does not understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches it away uh, snatches away what was sown into his heart. That tells me that understanding is key to being able to penetrate heart soil. The word understanding here is so cool. It means to put together, to comprehend. It means to put it all together and make sense of it, connecting the dots, if you will. So when I'm sitting under teaching, if I can't put it together and connect the dots, it's not going to penetrate my life. And I love to put puzzles together. Anybody besides me, I love jigsaw puzzles. I really, really, really like them. And commentators say that this word, understanding, is like taking all the pieces to a puzzle, gathering them together, and connect, you know, there's, those of you that put together puzzles, is there anything better than when you get that last piece and you push it in that you, mm, belongs right here. It's just su such satisfaction, isn't it? And that's what this word means. It means when you connect all the pieces and it starts to make sense, you connect them as a whole. Bill Johnson says the word understanding is learning that's applied to the five senses, and I like that. What it means is that what God says has to be brought into practical human experience. It can't just be head knowledge. We have to put the pieces together and apply it to our life because without bringing it into practical human experience, it becomes surface seed for the enemy to snatch away. Almost every Monday night, I will say to you, let me flesh this out for you. And, and what that means is I'm taking the word that I've just taught you and I'm teaching you then how to apply it to your life, how to make it practical to your life because I know that if I don't flesh it out for you and you don't apply it to your life that the enemy is going to come and snatch that thing away. Look at the second type of soil. It's seed, it's seed sown into stony ground. And, and look at verse 16 for Jesus' interpretation. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Then they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a time. And then when tribulation hmm, or persecution arises, and if you underline in your Bible, underline this, for the word's sake. I want you to see that tribulation and persecution arises for the word's sake. And immediately they stumble. Don't be surprised. I think it's James. I, I might be wrong, but does he say, Davy, don't be surprised at this fiery trial that you're enduring? I think that's James, yeah. Don't be surprised when trials and tribulations and troubles come in your life. Jesus tells us that they are sent for the sake of the word, for the word's sake. We see it in this passage. See, the word you and I receive in our life needs to be opposed 
The enemy doesn't want it planted in your life. He doesn't want us to receive it as truth. But there's another reason. In Hebrews 11:6, we read, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. You see, we have to have options. Faith is required because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so at every turn, I have a choice. Will I believe my circumstances or will I believe God's word? Every single time, I have that choice. You see, if we don't have options, there's no basis for reward. We don't have to obey. God did not create robots. So in our Christian walk, we're constantly faced with the option to obey God's word or not to believe God's word even when our situations look impossible. If that were easy to do, it wouldn't require faith. If you don't have faith, you can't please God. You see the vicious circle here. And so uh, to cling to God's supernatural word, I, I have a choice. Will I cling to God's supernatural word or will I allow my natural circumstances to dictate to us? We have a choice. Bill Johnson says, we must ask ourselves, am I going to believe what God said over my life or am I going to lend my heart, my emotional strength, my attention to a word that contradicts it? If I do, then I have given my authority to that which is inferior and undermines that which has all authority. Okay, let me, let me just explain that. At every point in my life, any time my, my natural circumstances start dictating to me, it's hopeless, this is awful, it's never going to work out, this marriage is never going to be better, my prodigal will never come home, this addiction will never get broken, I start believing those natural circumstances, you see? And now I have believed <laughs> an inferior word that contradicts a superior truth. Do you see it? And so I have a choice at that point. Will I believe my natural circumstances and be led astray by them and let it choke out the word of God in me? Or will I believe God's supernatural word over this natural circumstances? Dave and I met with a couple last night. uh, Brutal pain in their life and in their marriage. Pain that would make most of you run the other direction. And I sat with the precious wife, and and she tears streaming down her cheeks, and she said, Rhea, what will I do? I said, you will believe God. You won't believe these circumstances. You will believe God, that he is more powerful, that he is able to deliver, and you will fix your eyes on that. Because if you don't, you're going to drown in these circumstances. And that is every day in our life. We have a choice. Will I believe an inferior truth that contradicts the superior truth that God has promised? And he is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. This word is yea and amen to those who believe. But the challenge is, the challenge is will I let this seed be be, be deposited deep within my soul? and believe it over everything else. Will God's word have authority over everything else in my life? Or will I let my natural circumstances have authority? I have to make up my mind that I'll believe God's word over the inferior word that contradicts it, that that nothing is impossible for God. Do I believe that this circumstance is impossible, or do I believe that nothing is impossible for my God? 
Jesus illustrates this later in the chapter, and I love this. Look at verse 35. Many of you know this story. You're familiar with it. I want you to notice that it begins. This is Jesus has taught all morning long the sower and the seed, okay? He's just told them uh, that there is an opportunity when he sows the word of God that, that, that they'll immediately receive it with gladness, but when tribulation comes, they're going to ditch it. And so he's just told them that. And so verse 35 says, on the same day when evening had come, on the same day that Jesus, they had just said, listening to Jesus say, you know what, I just got to tell you, Masha, that, that their seed, there's sometimes your heart, I'll sow seed into your heart, and, and your heart will receive that seed, and then you'll go through a trial or a tribulation. And guess what's going to happen, Masha? That seed's going to get choked out because even though you received it with gladness, you're going to get your eye on that trial and that seed's going to get choked out. Jesus had just said that to them. And then the Bible says, on that same day when evening had come. <laughs> I love this. He says, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. So he gave them his word. Let us cross over. We're going to get to the other side of the lake, okay? Then look at verse 36. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And the other little boats also were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat on the boat so that it was already filling. But he was asleep in the stern. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I'm going to really date myself. How many of you remember? This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Beep. You remember that? You'd be watching cartoons, and all of a sudden, this thing would come on the screen. And this is a test. This is only, I hear that when I read this. I, when Jesus said, when, when, when he says, let us cross over to the other side of the lake, and they wake him up and say, don't you care that we're perishing? I hear, beep. This is a test. This is only a test. Some of you need to hear that tonight in your circumstances. This is a test. This is only a test. You see, the seed that had been sown into them, now the opposition was coming, and Jesus had warned them. He said, for the word's sake, trials and tribulations will come for the word's sake. That word needs to be opposed. I need to know that you're going to believe that over your circumstances, over that trial, over that windstorm. Don't wake me up. Come asleep with me and trust that we're going to get to the other side. I told you we would. I mean what I say. Jesus didn't say, let's go halfway across and then I'll swamp your boat and you're going to die. The disciples had seed from the Lord that they could use to bring forth fruit, but look what happened. They believed an inferior thought and they took on anxiety and fear and they stumbled. But look at Jesus' response. They say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And in verse 40, we see how Jesus responded. Why are you so fearful? How is it? that you have no faith, not little faith, no faith. You see, Jesus had sown that word into them, and he expected faith. He expected them to trust what he said, and their job was to believe it. <clears throat> he didn't want them, and he, don't want, he doesn't want us moved by our circumstances. He wants us to be moved by his word. And instead, when a trial came, the disciples did what so many of us do. They accused Jesus of being asleep on the job and not loving them or caring about them. Can I just tell you that the only purpose of trouble is to get our eye off the supernatural word and onto the natural circumstance. It's designed to make you stumble. 
Persecution and tribulation arise to steal the truth from you, to choke out the word, and to try to stop you from walking in victory and power. Soil number three, uh, the third type that was sown was the, the seed sown among the thorns, the thorny soil. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus tells us that three things will choke out the word in our life. The cares of this word, world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. It's interesting to me that Luke adds one more. He says the pleasures of life. <laughs> Leslie and I were just talking about this today. We were praying for some people we know, and, and we said the pleasures of their life, their life isn't hard. They're, the pleasures of their life is what is keeping them content in the world, and, and that will do it every time. Look at, let's take a look at this, the cares of this world. Cares means anxiety. It means cares, and it, it means to draw in different directions, to distract. It comes from two words, one meaning to divide, and the other means to the mind. It means to have a divided mind. I don't know how many of you are here tonight and you struggle with, with cares or with anxiety. I want you to see that the biblical word means to divide the mind, to distract. Anxiety or worries and distractions sent by the enemy to give you a divided mind. Designed to distract you from single focus on the word. Um, cares are those things which cause us to take our mind off of him and onto our problems. They're the things which bring anxiety and remove us from a place of peace and well-being. So many of us live in a place of constant torment. We're harassed by worry, by anxiety. Our emotions are all over the map. We're constantly up and down in life, and it's because we've given our attention to things that are opposing the Word of God in our life, entertaining thoughts and ideas that are draining, meditating on lies and inferior truth. Those things choke out the Word of God in our lives. Can I just tell you, you and I cannot afford to have a thought about ourselves that He's not having about us. We can't afford it. It will take us down every time. When I choose to focus on my situation or allow myself to be drawn into anxiety, I choose to focus on something inferior. That's why the Bible talks over and over about having a single mind and not allowing the cares of this world to, 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 to get us off focus with him. James says the challenge is always to believe God's word and not doubt because the man who doubts has a divided mind. And that man, he said, should not believe he'll receive anything from God because he'll be unstable and double-minded in all he does. I found an interesting quote by Oswald Chambers that I really liked. He said, it's not only wrong to worry, it's infidelity. Because worrying means that we do not think God can look after the practical details of our lives. And it's never anything else that worries us. Have you ever noticed that what Jesus said would choke out the word he puts in? Not the devil. It was the cares of this world. It is the little worries always. I will not trust where I cannot see. That's where infidelity begins. The only cure for infidelity is obedience to the Spirit. That was Oswald Chambers. 
I love what he said. It's not only wrong to worry, it's infidelity because worrying means that we do not think that God can look after the practical details of our life. Anytime I worry, what I say to God is you're not capable of taking care of me. You're not capable of, of looking after the cares of my life. So that will choke out the, the, the word of God. The deceitfulness of riches will, will choke out the word of God. Riches deceive. They promise things they cannot deliver. Bill Johnson says they're useful tools but terrible masters. I like that. The desires for other things will choke out the word of God. When we think there's actually something else in this world that can satisfy us other than God. Can I tell you, I looked everywhere. I tried everything. Only God will satisfy Everything else will let you down. The pleasures of this world, the last thing that he said will choke them out. He said, uh, we have an insatiable appetite for things, for fun. We love bigger cars, a bigger house. We like nicer clothing. We like to go to fun restaurants, enjoyable vacations. We like Packer games. We like hunting. We like fishing. My mama used to say, Rhea, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy because he accomplishes the same thing in doing that. There's nothing wrong with those things. It is, it, is, it is allowing those things to choke out your time with Jesus, to choke out your intimacy with him, to choke out the word of God in your life. They distract us from the one thing that really does satisfy. They give us another God to bow down to. And we can all get caught in that trap. Why the Bible says we need to examine our life and throw off anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Look at the last ground. It's good ground, and I'm finishing here. Um, verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. I'm telling you, this is the part. I did not even have this in my notes when I studied it. Look at verse 8. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, produced, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Uh, Matthew, I believe, it's interesting, he turns those numbers around. He says some 100, some 60, some 30. I think there's a connection there. I, I, I'll touch on that a little later. But um, I want you to see that the seed fell on good ground, yielded a crop, sprang up, increased, and produced. I, I love it. You see, the Bible says that the person doesn't just hear the word, they accept it. And it springs up in their life and it produces in their life. The word of God should produce in our life. We should look different next week than we look today because we heard the word of God and it produced in our life. It increased in our life. But look at that. It shouldn't just increase. This is what bothered me so much, is this is all good ground, and it's all good seed. We're not talking about hard ground anymore. We're not talking about thorny ground anymore. We're talking about good ground. And now I'm seeing even in good ground, it's possible to produce more and more and more. Do you see it? It's some good ground. You're only getting 30% uh, increase. I, now, I, I like numbers, and I'm telling you, that means 70% of the time it's not hitting going good ground. 60% is still better, but that still means 40% of the time it's not producing in your life. I want a hundredfold, and I've sat with this passage this week, and I'm like, Lord, why haven't I seen that before? It's all good ground. It's possible to sit here tonight with a good heart and still only walk away with 30% increase in your life. I want a hundred. I'm just telling you, I am greedy. I am greedy. I want a hundred, and I want to know why. It's all good ground. 
So, Lord, I'm presenting good ground in my heart, and your seed is good. Why am I only getting 30% increase? Anybody see that before? I've never seen it. So here's what happened. Davy and I had a garden this year. <laughs> We're not super good at it, but we had one. And, and I was so proud. We went out. We got miracle go grow soil. We didn't just get cheap soil. Dave wanted to buy Walmart soil. I said, no, baby, we are getting the good stuff. I bought miracle grow soil. And, and we mixed it. I read on the Internet, you need to mix it with a little peat moss. We worked that soil. We made it good. It was good. Was it good? It was good soil. We put it in there. Good soil. Good soil plus good seed, good harvest. I, that's what I thought. So this sweet guy from our church built us this little beautiful, what kind of cherry? A raised garden, but what kind of wood was it? <laughs> a Brazilian hardwood. It was beautiful. And, and so we got beautiful surrounding, good soil, good seed. We went out. I bought really good plants. I asked all our little gardening people in our church because they're good at this. I'm like, where do you buy your plants? Oh, go here. I went there. I bought plants, and, and we planted them. And then we discovered, oh, we planted them too close. We sent uh, uh, one of our friends from church a picture, and she said, yeah, I have way too many plants in that little pot. You get some of those out of there. And I'm like, nah, we have a harvest. <laughs> and then how long did it take, Dave? <laughs> We had five cabbages, <laughs> three tomato plants. We had, I don't know how many peppers. I had basil, I cucumbers. We had squash all in this little square. <laughs> so we're watering it every day, and I'm you know, really, I'm looking for bugs on it. We're taking such good care of that garden. And then all of a sudden, it all started sprouting up, and, and none of it was getting enough sun and because it was too crowded. So Dave ripped out half of the beds. And anyway, long story short, we started getting tomatoes and peppers, and I am proud as a peacock. We got the zucchini, and I'm like, one zucchini, two peppers. <laughs> Our tomatoes got black stuff on the bottom. Somebody said, it's rot. <laughs> Get rid of those tomatoes. And I'm like, but I got two tomatoes off this plant, and look how nice they are. I am so proud. And we go to church, and our friend Kathy and Tom brought this plastic <laughs> plastic dish of tomatoes with plastic bags. And they're like, everybody take some because we have so many tomatoes. We don't even know what to do with them all. And I'm thinking, I got two tomatoes. <laughs> I had good soil. I had really good seed. What's up with that? They got 100 fold. I got 30, maybe, not even. But I got produce. And then I read the scripture. And I went to Kathy and I was like, Tell me how many tomato plants you had. Because I want to know how you got that kind of produce and I got two tomatoes. How did I do this? So I'm talking to Dave about the scripture. And I'm like, David, what's the difference? Because we had good soil. We had good plants. What do you think the difference was? Crowded. We went on vacation. Leslie watered our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha, 
Ten, tending, tending. Still good soil, still good seed, still good increase. Not nearly what the Scozzles got, but it was good increase. The difference was tending. The, di the difference was nurturing. The difference was, I just want a hundredfold, I'm just telling you. I'm not satisfied with 30. So you can sit here and be so glad that you don't have hard heart or you don't have a thorny, thorny ground and that the seed is still producing in your life. But I got two tomatoes, and I wanted a whole bunch. Some 30, some 60, some 100. Right before I left, I, I felt like a nudge from the Lord, and he said, look up 30, 60, 100, and the prophetic, the biblical numerology behind it. Do you know that 30 is considered a number of maturity and loyalty and true dedication. I'm not even exaggerating that. That's exactly what I got out of the dictionary. The Bible dictionary said the number 30 is considered to be a number of maturity, loyalty, and true dedication. So I'm telling you, when you sit here and your heart is ready and you are loyal to his word and you're dedicated to receiving, you're gonna get, you're gonna get an increase. 30 is an increase of maturity, loyalty and true dedication 60 is the number of nurturing and harmony i'm not even kidding you dave and i are talking i'm like what was the difference between the skazas tomatoes and ours dave they tended they nurtured them 60 is a number of nurturing and harmony then i looked up the number of 100 and and when i read the number of 100 i didn't really like it because it said the bible <laughs> It said it means promise, specifically the promised son who came from Abraham. And he was as good as dead. So it's a picture of resurrection of new life. It's like, that's good, you know, because when I really tarry for the hundredfold harvest from your word, it does bring new life. But here's what I really like. I, I closed my notebook and I, I was ready to leave and the Lord said, a hundred's two fifties. Fifty is jubilee, it's deliverance. And when I sit with the word and I tarry in the word and I say, Lord, I'm not leaving until you produce, the, this word produces in my life and I'm going to nurture it and I'm going to tend it and, and I'm going I'm, I'm to be devoted and loyal to it because remember, 30, loyal devotion, uh, 60, tender, tend, ten, tending and nurturing. I'm going to nurture this. I'm going to be loyal to it. I'm going to be devoted to your word. I am going to then get the 250s, the jubilee, the deliverance. That word is going to deliver me from addiction. It's going to deliver me from, from sin. It's going to deliver me from the garbage in my life that I hate and I don't know how to get free from. But it's going to be when I sit with the word and I have a heart that's prepared and ready and I'm going to nurture it and I'm going to tend to it and I'm going to be loyal and devoted to it and then I'm going to see that increase, 30, 60, 100-fold. I told you I was struck that Matthew <laughs> lists 160, 30. He goes down, and I'm like, Lord, what is that all about? And I really believe that that's God's desire for us, is to not start 30, 60, 100, but to start 100-fold. That, that's his will. Um, look at this, uh, look at the verse again. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. That word accept is interesting. It means to receive, to take up, to take one upon oneself and not to reject it, to, to receive or admit with approval. 
That's the heart of Jesus' disciples. A man or woman who accepts his word, who trusts him with it when it's dark, who, who receives, who answers the door to his word. You see, I, I think it's possible to sit under a word and say, you know what, That's, she's so super spiritual. You know, I just want to have fun. I just want to go out with my friends. I want to party. I want to get drunk as a skunk. And then I want to go to Sunday school and church on Sunday morning and check off my box that I did something spiritual that week. When you receive his word, you accept it. You take it in. And you, you receive it into yourself. You, you, you welcome it. You say, Lord, I don't like that word. It's not, I'm telling you, there are mornings that I get up and I sit with the word. I mean, I'm telling you, I would like to be in bed. There, like, I crawled out of bed this morning and Davey grabbed me. And I was like, yeah, I would like to stay here with you. But I have so much junk in my life that needs to be changed. I need the word. I know that it'll change me. And so when I sit with that word, there are sometimes I sit with it and I'm like, Lord, you know, can you point that out to somebody else? Why is it always me you're pointing this stuff out to? How about so-and-so? Because they got some stuff that needs dealt with, Lord. How about Davy? Wake him up and give him a little bit of this stuff. And then he reminds me, here's the one that falls on good soil, the one who hears it and receives it, who accepts it and welcomes it into their life, that doesn't point the finger to somebody else. That says, yes, Lord, I receive that. I receive that. Can I ask you what kind of soil is making up your heart tonight? Is it hard and calloused? Is it shallow and rocky? Is your heart overly crowded with concerns or fears or anxieties? Or is it soft and open to God's word? I used to think that this story represented four different types of people. I, I don't anymore. I believe that they are conditions of the heart at any given moment when the word is being sown. You see, there are times that I sit under the word and my heart's hard to it. There are times I sit in the Word and I'm worried about my kids or my grandchildren. There are times that, that, that I, I'm, I'm just not there. I'm, I'm just letting it go in one ear and out the other. It can be my heart at any given time. The grace of God, that there are times that, that it is only the grace of God. When that Word penetrates my life and it really changes me, it's an act of grace. That's why it's so important that we're constantly examining our heart. Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. I, I love that. It doesn't mean, Jackie, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith and you're going to, you're going to heaven, because I don't know. That's not what it means. It means, am I looking at this scripture? I have to examine myself and see if I'm in the faith. Am I putting my faith in God's word? Am I totally trusting him with my circumstance? Am I looking at this word and saying, I'm going to choose that superior truth over the inferior truth that the enemy wants me to believe? Examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. One last thing. The word of God, it says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. And they did not enter because of disobedience. Every time God speaks, we must add our faith to it and obey it, or it won't profit us. Every time he speaks, he wants it to profit us. 
Another translation reads, and I believe it sums up this parable, for we have heard the good news of deliverance just as they did, yet they did not join their faith with the word. Instead, what they heard didn't affect them deeply, for they doubt it. I like that. Instead, what they heard didn't affect them deeply, for they doubt it. You see, the disciples were ordinary men. There was nothing special about them. What distinguished them was their relationship with Jesus. They heard the word, and they responded to him. They wanted his word to penetrate their heart, but they needed understanding before it could. So they sought it out from him. And we need to do the same. If we're studying a passage we don't understand, we have to do what they did. We need to go to him. We need to ask him for revelation. We need to ask him for insight. We have to begin to understand that this word is not just words on a page. Hear me with this. Well, what do we call in John? In the beginning was the word. Who is that? Jesus, he's called the living word, okay? So we need to understand that when we're reading this word, Christianese, when we're reading the Bible, the Word, that, that it's not just words on a page. Do, do you understand that? It, it is absolutely life, but it's the entrance. The entrance of His Word into my life is the entrance of a person into my life because He is the living Word. And so it's not just about stewarding a word. It's about stewarding a relationship with Him. And, and when I realize that, it's easy to surrender to His Word. Because I'm not surrendering to words on a page that I can choose to obey or not. I'm surrendering to a person, the lover of my soul, the one who knows me best, the one who sticks closer than a brother. I'm surrendering to the one who has the ability to deliver me. One, well, in closing, let me just tell you this. You've heard me say this a million times. <clears throat> one of my favorite scriptures is, don't give place to the devil. And that word place is topos. It's where we get our word topography. Dave loves maps. And, and, and it's topography is the is study of maps. Is that what it is? And, and, and so the word topos, it means a geographical location. So when he says don't give place to the devil, what he's saying is don't give the devil a geographical location in your mind or in your heart to act. Don't give him a place to act. He has no power. He's a defeated foe. He doesn't have any power or authority in your life. The only power he has is what you surrender to him. That's why we're told don't give place to the devil. So if we are told not to give place to the devil, I wonder if we need to give place to God's word. I wonder if the opposite is true, that we have to make room and give place for God's word, give it an occasion to act in our life. Proverbs 4.20 says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your eye. Keep them in the midst of your heart for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. His words are life. Plant them deep in your heart. I believe that in our, our series, The Secret to Victorious Christian Living, this is yet another secret. Regularly evaluating the condition of our hearts, examining ourselves daily to see if we're in the faith and giving attention to his word refusing to let them depart from our eyes, <coughs> keeping them in the midst of our heart because we realize his words are life and those who find them have health to their flesh. I'm telling you, if you are miserable tonight 
if you are uh, joyless tonight, if you are depressed, if you are just unhappy, spend some time in his word. Ask him. Say, Lord, I'm not leaving. I'm going to be like the crowds that followed you, your, your close followers. I'm not leaving your presence until you give me an understanding of this word that I can apply to my life. I promise you, he is up for that challenge. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him out. Are, are you with me? And he wants you to understand his word. I'm going to ask Megan to come up and close with a song. But before I do, let me just ask you, or just let me tell you, D Davey, I, I love when he sends me love notes. I, sometimes he'll just put a note someplace in our house and, or he'll leave a note on, on my desk. and I, I love it. But when I first married him, he has terrible, terrible, terrible handwriting. <laughs> and I, I would get a love note from him and I couldn't read it and but I was so happy that I got a love note I would just be like I don't want to hurt his feelings and I can't tell him I can't read this and so I'd be like oh, that's such a sweet note but I wanted to know what it said but I, I didn't want to hurt him and and so I got to a point where I'd be like Davey I, I want to know what this says can you just tell me what this word is right here and he was like no problem at all I'll just tell you what that is let me read that to you and and he didn't take offense to that because it was his love note to me, and he wanted me to get it. He wanted me to understand it. He wanted me to know what I was writing to him. Can I tell you that this right here is God's love note to you? And when you don't understand it, you don't have to pretend you do. Go to the author. Go to the writer of that love note and say, God, I really want to get this. I want it to penetrate my heart and change my life. Would you just give me understanding? Would you give me revelation? watch what happens so father I pray for my brothers and my sisters tonight it is the entrance of your word that brings life and I'm asking Lord that you would grant them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know you better I want to know you better Lord father would you do that for us would you open up our eyes to your truth? Would you let us see what, what, what we can't see? Would you remove the veil that the enemy has placed there to keep us from seeing truth, Lord God? And would you speak to us deeply in your word? Father, I pray for the hearts that are, are, are here tonight. and Lord God, I pray that you just, you just go through this room and that you put your finger on hearts and that you'd begin to soften them, Lord God. I pray for any areas that have been hardened by sin's deceitfulness or, or heartache or heartbreak, Lord God. I pray that you, Lord God, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, their healer, will put your gentle finger right in that heart, Lord God, and that you would, you would soften it, Father. So it's ready to receive your word. Forgive us, Lord, for any doubt and unbelief. Father, increase our faith and help us to put our trust in you and in your word and to get our eyes off inferior circumstances that would want us to believe something different. You are the revelator, Lord. Give us revelation, I pray. Bless each person here tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.